Me again. It is a pleasure to be with you. I realized, uh, I think it was last month when I filled in for Josh, that I never really introduced myself. We've had a lot of visitors here lately, and uh, so I'm just give you a little information. I, I am Todd Brooks, and our family has been members here for about six years, and I am a former pastor, so when Josh is out of town, sometimes I, I feel in for him. So I just didn't want you to feel like we just brought somebody in from off the street to preach. So uh, to, it may seem like it sometimes. But uh, anyway, we'll be late this morning, we will uh, be in the book, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. We will be reading verses 12 through 36, and our focus will be on verses 20 through 26. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that uh, these things uh, had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he would call out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the death continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, that, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these, uh, so these came to Philip, who was from uh, Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from, uh, from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had been thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, and when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this is showed by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do pray that Jesus did. Father, for you to glorify your name. And we do pray for that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for this church and the church, uh, Father, that uh, we have. And Father, that uh, church that you established. And Father, we thank you so much for your love. And we thank you for your grace and for our forgiveness of our sins. For us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are times in script, uh, when we are interpreting uh, Scripture to make sure we don't get carried away with parts or ideas that are briefly mentioned or, or assumed or they're not written. It's called majoring in the minor. Now, majoring on the minor might seem insignificant on the surface because it is still Scripture after all. But majoring on the minor can lead to things such as the prosperity gospel, the self-help gospel, and just downright bad theology. Majoring on the minor is how we get people like Joel Osteen and, and Joyce Meyer. That is not to say that we should completely ignore the minor things, the minor principles that we see, uh, the, the background that we see in Scriptures. Uh, as I believe I said before up here, living a, uh, living a Christian life like things, uh, like many things in life, requires some type of balance. Without it, without balance, we get extremes. As far as Scripture is concerned, on one side, we have a strict, unbending, ungodly legalism. On one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, we have a freedom to sin, to do whatever we want, with the notion that God is going to forgive us anyway. The minor things, while we should learn from them, there's two things, really major things, that we can learn. One is to help give context to the major points, and two is to illuminate the major points of what the passage of Scripture is trying to tell us. And so this is where uh, we see here this morning this passage in John verses 20 through 26 that on the surface may not seem that significant, maybe something that we kind of just uh, kind of go through until we get to what the Jesus, the, to, to uh, Jesus' words, but it is the part that leads up to that. The first few verses plays, a, I believe, an important role to what Jesus tells them. And uh, here we have some Greeks, the, uh, at least the New King, uh, New King James Version says they were certain Greeks, means they were a particular group of, of, Greeks, uh, of Greeks, and uh, so this is so this these were uh, uh, had converted to Judaism, and uh, they were Gentiles uh, who had converted to Judaism. So 
They come up, they want to talk to Jesus, but they're still Gentiles. And so uh, Philip, as we will see, doesn't know what to do with them. And so was it significant that they were Greeks? Of all the apostles, why go to Philip? Was it just a random selection or was it intentional or was it purposeful that they went to talk to Philip? And why does Philip go to tell Andrew instead of going straight to Jesus? Why does it seem that these men just ask a simple question but all of a sudden it turns into a deep answer, a complex situation? Again, in the grand scheme of things, these things pale to what Jesus says in response. But also, again, by really looking at this passage, we see a great illumination of Jesus' final days of earthly ministry. Here we see one, if not the last, domino to fall of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, when this exchange takes place between Jesus and these Greek men. And uh, we seem to, uh, he seems to, sig- to signify that uh, with his answer. Looking back here in the first three verses, I'll read them again. Uh, and starting in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Uh, excuse me, sorry, that, we'll stop right there, verse 22. The, again, the Greeks were converts to Judaism. That's a, that's a safe assumption to make since they had come to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. And so they come and they want to see Jesus. Oh, the irony that we can see here between verses 19 and 20. We look again at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees, the one, the, the, the supposed leaders of the, the nation of Israel, the ones that Jesus came to say first, and then the Gentiles, they had rejected him. They were talking about raising Lazarus uh, from the dead, and instead of, instead of rejoicing about uh, Lazarus raising from the dead, their main concern is they have people following after Jesus. So, then we see this great contract uh, of these Greek men who humbly come to seek an audience with Jesus. And so, uh, right then, at this very moment, when the Jewish authorities were planning a way to kill him, Gentiles began to desire Christ's attention. These men go to Philip, who we see here is from Galilee, but he's also has a Greek name. Philip is a Greek name. It is not a Hebrew name. And so uh, at some point in his family history there, 
they had converted to Judaism, and he still had a Greek name. And so these men might have known uh, or recognized Philip. They might have had somebody uh, call him, uh, heard somebody call him by name and recognized this man is a Greek. He is like us. And so, uh, so being a Greek descendant himself, they might have approached him and uh, thinking he was uh, the most relatable to them, which begs the question, what about us? Would people we know, with people we come in contact with every day, see us as relatable and approachable when it comes to our faith? Do we share in love or do we share with a sledgehammer? While people may not have the same beliefs as us, do they at least have respect for our beliefs? Do they see us living out the things we say we believe in? Would someone feel comfortable coming up to you and asking, can you tell me about Jesus? These men came, come to Jesus much earlier like the Magi had come. We have the Magi coming shortly, Gentile Magi, coming shortly after his birth to worship him. Then we have Gentiles coming shortly before his death to worship him. They both came for the same thing. To give the king the glory that belonged to him. These men were humble and that they didn't go boldly go and speak to Jesus directly. They asked permission. They, uh, they asked Philip humbly. They addressed him as sir. Then what does Philip do? Philip is indecisive. He doesn't know what to do. And so he goes to Andrew. Now, uh, John MacArthur in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, does a wonderful job of piecing together the personalities of the apostles, apostles taken, from, taken from the Scriptures. And he notes that Philip was a go-by-the-book go uh, go kind of guy, and there was, uh, uh, there's nothing in the book that said anything about bringing Gentiles to Jesus, so he didn't know what to do. He was a practical person. He seemed more concerned uh, about method and protocol. Uh, he seemed, uh, uh, as a, MacArthur calls him, a bean counter. Like he was like an accountant. He always had figures in his head. It was Philip who was, who was exasperated when Jesus tells the apostle to feed the 5,000. And Philip's like, feed, feed all these people. We don't, it, even if we had 200 uh, denarii, we could, we could, there, that wouldn't be enough to give them, each person even a little bit piece of bread. He had already been doing the head count. He had already been doing all the figuring. It wasn't practical for them to feed all these people. And so because of it, of this situation, he was indecisive about what to do. So he goes to Andrew. 
Peter's brother. What we know about Andrew is Andrew is not as reserved as Philip is. He brings everybody to Jesus. We see a couple of instances in, uh, in, in Scripture where Andrew is bringing people to Jesus. He, he brought his uh, brother Peter to meet Jesus. Um, it, was, it was Andrew who found the boy who had the uh, two fish and five loaves and brought him to Jesus to feed the 5,000. So Andrew uh, did not have a problem just introducing anybody to Jesus. And so, and, uh, so he had no in, uh, inhibitions at all. So perhaps Philip is thinking, I'll let Andrew make the call, and if there's any blowback, it will fall on, fall on him instead of me. This, this is a simple yes or no question proposed by the Greeks. Sir, if we want to see Jesus, yes or no, and here it is getting complicated. You know, when I give advice to prospective grooms, one of the things I tell them, only half jokingly, is never ask a yes or no question expecting a yes or no answer in return because the answer is probably not coming in that format. Now, the minor part of this passage is over. We've established that. We, we see what all the things, that the, the, the intricate parts that are going here. We see the backstory, And now we see how it begins to illuminate what Jesus tells them. So first part of the text, the, uh, there is a question asked. And here in the second part, we have... The answer. At this point of this passage, Jesus is on a bullet train to the cross, and there are no stops or possible derailments along the way. It's going to happen. Everything is providentially set in motion, and now it is coming to fruition. This is not man's plan. This is God's plan. So Jesus is in an extreme emotional state at this point, as you can surely imagine. I mean, we know because of verse 27, where he says, Now is my soul troubled. The Greek word here is a, it is a, it's a strong word. It means to, it signifies horror, anxiety, and, and agitation. And so Jesus' contemplation of taking on the wrath of God for the sins of the world just caused revulsion in the sinless Savior. He knows what is coming. It's not the physical pain of the cross that is bothering him. It is the separation and, and having, enduring the wrath of his Father. And so, his soul is troubled. And so, what does Jesus do but these two strangers, who aren't even Jews, walk up to them. He's going through all these emotions. What does he do? He shares the gospel. Oh, to be able to put aside our own worries and heavy burdens, regardless of how justified they may seem to recognize, despite what we are going through, 
people still need Jesus. And that is far more important than any troubles that we maybe have. The first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth are, the hour has come. Maybe looking at these Greeks standing before him, Jesus recognized his ministry is now complete. He is reaching the Gentiles. The Gentiles are now going to follow him. The Gentiles are seeking him, which means if the Gentiles are seeking him, that means the Father is seeking the Gentiles because no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him to himself. Then there's Jesus just in a couple of chapters back in John 10, 16, we have where Jesus talks about these other sheep. He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It was the plan all along. And despite what Joseph Smith says about this verse, I'm sorry, Mormons, Jesus is not talking about North American tribes. He's talking about Gentiles. At this point, Jesus' hour had always, Jesus' hour when he spoke of it had always been in the future. This is a significant thing that Jesus says. He says, The hour has come throughout all of the gospel. Just, um, uh, it's, it's mentioned five times in John alone where he says, The hour has not come. Either Jesus says it or John, as the author, says it. Um, uh, these instances are in what may be considered both positive and negative circumstances. We know the people wanted to make him king after the feeding of the 5,000 for the wrong reason, but they wanted to make him king. He was very popular. So he escaped from them at that point because his time had not yet come and for the fact that he was not there to grant them all their wishes and to throw out the Romans. And so we also know that he escaped people who wanted to stone him. People when he claimed to be God. And so uh, because his hour had not come, Jesus then refers to himself as the Son of Man, which in most cases is used to signify the crucifixion or, or suffering, which, is all, which is exactly lies ahead in this case. Also interesting he is that he says the Son of Man is to be glorified. Crucifixion was anything but glorifying. It was a humili- humiliating physical death, but Jesus spoke both of his death and resurrection. Something that even disciples at this point failed to understand. Then he tells them to pay attention. He is fixing to reveal a truth, which he does frequently when he says, uh, uh, truly, truly, I say to you. He uses the, uh, uh, an analogy or an illustration of a seed falling to the ground. He notes it only when the seed dies, that's when it bears fruit. Seeds may look pretty on the plant itself, 
but they do no good until they fall to the ground. If it, it, it's true in nature that when a kernel of wheat died, it could not, until a kernel of wheat died, it could not reproduce itself. It could not multiply itself. Jesus said that in a like manner, until he died, he could not re- reproduce his life in others. This can apply to us both physically and spiritually. We see examples all the time of a brother or a sister in Christ dying and, and having more of an impact after they, their death than they did before. That's the most obvious example, but there is a spiritual example as well. And t- unless we die to ourselves spiritually, we cannot bear fruit. Why? Because of our selfish human nature. We can't bear spiritual fruit if we haven't died, died to our own selfish desires. Humanism tells us we are basically good with, with having some bad tendencies. Scripture tells us we are all depraved sinners. We don't want to glorify God in our human fleshly state. We want to glorify and feel better about ourselves. To think about what is in it for me. But praise God and by His grace, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we would not have to rely on our own works that would fall woefully short of earning eternal life, which we cannot do. Know that says that to bear fruit not produces fruit. The plant doesn't produce fruit. It bears the fruit. We do not produce our own fruit. Instead, we bear fruits of righteousness through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. All that we have is from Jesus. These Greeks could have been in the first part of this harvest that Jesus was talking about. Whether people receive benefits from Christ's death would depend on their attitude toward Him. That attitude is found in his next two verses. Verse 25 goes right along with this uh, morning's call to worship in Luke chapter 9 when he says, whoever loves this life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will be my, my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In order to gain life, we must be willing to lose it. It screams against everything the world tells us. It screams against everything that our own minds tells us. It does not make any sense. It doesn't fit into the worldly narrative. However, without the willingness to die for or into Christ, we cannot have eternal life. It is only when we die into Christ when we accept Him by grace through faith that we become a new creation. Not only do we become a new <coughs> creation, we become His servant. <coughs> People may not, not, not like to hear that. <coughs> In today's I'm my own man or woman environment, Jesus says, no. If you aren't willing to serve me, you can't be my disciple. And if you are willing to serve me, you must 
follow me. Must follow me. If you are a true child of God, you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So yes, Jesus owned you. But you know what? It's glorious. Service requires obedience. And that obedience requires us to be where Jesus is. It may put us in a difficult or uncomfortable or even sometimes deadly situations, but that's okay. You know why? Because it means if we are required to be where Jesus is, guess what? Jesus is there with us. It means our shepherd is there with us and our shepherd is sovereign. Jesus promises us if we are obedient servants that God will honor us. How is this honor bestowed? Sure, our reward, eternal reward, is not here on earth. It's in, uh, it's in our next life. But how? But, but, but what about the honor aspect? I believe the answer lies in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and fading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, <coughs> you have been grieved by various trials so that you tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not, though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is unexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, are, are you like the Greeks this morning? In our text this morning? Do you want an audience with the king? If so, you desire that because of the Father has drawn you and has chosen you since before the, before the foundation of the world. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Him. And please feel free to speak with one of our elders about questions of salvation or about the church and brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's be hearers and doers of the word. Let's do what Christ has commanded us wholeheartedly and be willing to follow the example of Jesus and always have the time regardless of, this, of our circumstances to share the gospel. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, Father, I, I, I pray for your forgiveness, Father, of, of letting the things of this world come, Father, to your work. Between, and Father, I just pray that, uh, Father, that uh, you would uh, remind us, Father, to strengthen us, that, uh, Father, that you are sovereign. You are in control. You are the great shepherd. And 
Father, that uh, we shouldn't let the circumstances of our life cause us not to be obedient. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone who does not know you, Father, draw them to yourself, Father. Save them. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.